When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sharon Van Etten even found time during a truly hectic past few years to make a new album at all is already impressive, let alone one as epic and wonderful as her new fifth studio album, Remind Me Tomorrow, which is out this week. Welcome to episode 21 of the LSQ podcast. I'm Jenny LSQ and excited to share with you a long and luxurious conversation with Sharon that we recorded at my place in Brooklyn late last year, where we talked at the start about how Sharon is coming off of a few years when she not only gave birth to her first child, but also went back to school to study psychology and started a side career in acting. And if you stick with me after the interview with Sharon from my archive, it's an excerpt of a 2004 conversation I had with Gwen Stefani as she was gearing up for her first solo album. Welcome back. It's the LSQ Podcast, first episode of the new year. Let's go. Well, I mean, yeah, I think it's really interesting, Sharon Bennett, <laughs> that in addition to making a new record, you went back to school uh, because we were talking about before we opened up the microphones, like, yeah, once you leave that mode, I did, like, master's right after, like, took one semester off, because I was like, I'm going to become lazy and not, did you have to, did did you have to reorient yourself towards school homework mode when you started this journey? I'm still getting into that mode, because I can't fully go into it, because I'm only going part-time, I'm only a sophomore right now. Right. And I've only been every, been able to go every other year with everything else going on the past few years. So I have a long ways to go. Right. So it's, well, it's, that's awesome that it's, that they don't, it's awesome that they let you do the degree at that pace and that there aren't some weird rules about number of credits per semester in order to remain matriculating or something. And we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, I'm still fairly new, but the head of the psychology department has been really nice and he's trying to help me figure out a way to reach my goals, which, you know, my joke is by the time I'm 50, I'm hoping to have certification, yeah. but it's actually real. It's probably more of a reality than a joke at this point with everything right. else going on. Yeah. But I mean, you know, it's funny because, uh, it's, uh, on some episodes of the podcast, it's become a recurring theme talking with artists about like, what's the thing? And I guess maybe it's because I always ask about it, but like sort of what's the thing that you would do if you had to do something that wasn't, that didn't involve music, you know, for whatever reason. Um, but also the overlapping idea of should I be doing, you know, like I had, I just did an episode with Eleanor Friedberger mm-hmm. and she was joking about that. Like, oh, maybe I should get a job. Maybe I'll become a 
plastic surgeon or something. <laughs> um, but when you began, you know, a couple of years ago now or whatever to, to go back to school, was it because you thought like, maybe music, maybe I'll stop doing music sooner than, than I thought. Like maybe I, maybe I want to do something else now. Or is it really just, or is this, or is the pursuing the degree in psychology more of a meta wanting to acquire that knowledge and hopefully find a way to do something with it down the road? Well, I think it's all connected and, you know, it's still unfolding as I'm learning and, and sort of seeking out what it is exactly I'm finding, like I'm looking for. Yeah. I know that I want to, let me try that again. I, what changed my mind in the middle of a tour one time was when I was connecting to fans and talking to them after the shows and hearing a lot of emotional stories to when they connected with people over my music, how my songs say something they can't. And they were able to get in touch with certain emotions that without finding this one song that they wouldn't, they weren't able to get in touch with before. And at first, you know, you feel good about your music because that's why you do it. It's to connect with other people and help you feel like it's not selfish that you're just standing on stage and playing these songs and demanding everyone's attention. And and then it started toying with my head a little bit because a lot of my songs are about past relationships that didn't work out. Um, I'm boiling it down, yeah. simplifying it, yeah. but because I was so driven in my career and I was gone a lot of the time and I didn't pay enough attention to it or I was too hard to be with because I was always gone and, and I'm on the t- I'm on touring all the time and writing records and the touring cycle lasts for like a year and a half and looking at both kind of subject matters I realized that I was fulfilling this like cycle you know this mm. self-fulfilling prophecy yeah, I guess is yep. what they call it or something totally. you know I just finally got to the point where and I had been touring from 2010 to 2015 pretty hardcore, I feel like. And I felt like I owed it to myself to live in New York now that I had worked hard enough to be able to float to like live for a second and figure out how am I going to explore being creative while being home and trying to understand why my music connects with people and also why it helps me. Yeah. So... It's true. It's all still unfolding, much like life. It's all still <laughs> unfolding. Um, and, you know, uh, I think it's interesting. I was just listening to your new record, Remind Me Tomorrow, um, and in particular that the song 17, and, and wondering if that, you know, if that tune, you know, is sort of like a, you know, inspired by this, uh, re- seeing the reflection of perhaps your younger self in, in some of the fans of the music, like, being able to find a new kind of empathy in seeing, you know, this relationship that fans have with your songs and remembering what a mess, you know, everyone is at that age, like forgiveness for, you know, sort of finding forgiveness for your younger self through the process of, of like uh, connecting with fans. Absolutely. Um, it, that, that song sparked from walking up a street where there was a place that I used to hang out at a lot and it was closed and I remember quietly cursing to myself that something else cool was going in its place. <laughs> and then I remembered back to a moment where a friend of mine that's lived in New York longer than me, when he first kind of introduced me to his area of Williamsburg about 15 years ago, and he said, civilizations throughout time, rise and fall. 
and heed this as a you know a warning that just enjoy it now because things are about to change and i had never i had never lived in a city that long to see the kind of change and um so as things have unfolded over the years especially this neck of the woods because that's my first apartment was on broadway and marcy and um this this was a destination back then and just for like a few little places you know and catching myself cursing about something that he had warned me about 15 years ago and i see a kid that's younger than me that is able to afford a neighborhood that i can't anymore i just it's really weird i had a chuckle at myself you know i never hung on long enough i feel like every two years i would like put my stuff in storage, go on tour, come back at a new place and do the same thing over and over again. Cause yeah, I had, but starting at a pretty young age, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm 37 now. So I was 23 when I moved here. Right. And, you know, play, a place is a, where you put your things. I yeah. mean, <laughs> at that time. Yeah, so. totally. So let's, let's go back uh, in time. Um, when did you first start to feel musical? Musical. Yeah, when did you when did you begin to feel like drawn toward music? Well, the first time I have, I have, I have a memory of moving into this house. I, I grew up in New Jersey and I lived in Nutley until I was in sixth grade, which is like Sopranos town. Okay. And <laughs> we moved into this fixer upper Victorian house that my dad and my uncle worked on until. It was fixed, and they sold it because they couldn't afford it anymore. Um, But then it came with this grand piano in the living room. And we were coming from, like, a a smaller house. I was maybe four years old. Mm -hmm. And I'm one of five kids, so my parents are running around, like, directing the movers, where to put boxes. The kids are all exploring. And I'm just, like, wandering around, and I can't find anybody. And my mom just hears me crying. She can't find me. And I'm just sitting underneath this piano crying. And she's like, and ever since I found you under that piano, it like became like a place of solitude for you. And you didn't really know how to play at first, but I would catch you just playing a note and listening for a long time. And you would start like making sounds. And she said that by the time I was in second grade, she wanted to get me lessons. Wow. Like first, second grade. So I took a few years of lessons and... The teacher, my mom said, was going through a divorce, so she said it got she got really aggressive. So I had to stop. <laughs> and then Ooh. she got me she got me like another lesson, which I went from piano to violin to clarinet, and all only lasted a couple of years. But right. she was really encouraging of just the musical. Like, when did you start to nerd out on making songs, or when did you start to even write your own songs? I was a late bloomer to writing songs, even though I was drawn to music all the time. My family were just music fans, but I have an older brother who is about four years older than me, who had a guitar given to him by my uncle, and no one was allowed to touch it, (laughs) so I wanted to touch it, (laughs) and whenever he left the house, I would pick it up. It was like an old frontier guitar and it had the original strings on it, I think, from when my uncle was a kid. And I would play until my fingers bled. I had no idea what I was doing. But it was you know, it felt kinda like naughty and yeah. also it was really fun and I had no idea what I was doing and it probably sounded like shit. Um 
But I, it was something that I was driven to do. And then my brother would find out and he'd get really mad. And one day there was actually like blood left on the guitar for my fingers. Oh my God. And he kind of like had the first look of like, aw, you really want to do this. Right. And he started giving me cassette tapes and he wrote down chords for me. And he taught me how to tune the guitar. And he said, if you're just going to borrow it, will you just tune it for me when you're done? And I started figuring things out but i i was by no means writing anything that i would that would that anyone would, would kept, yeah. or anyone would have called a song right, probably right and but, what would you what music were you into what were you listening to at that point or what what even would it would it would have been on the radio well by the time i did that let's see i was in junior high high school and my brother got me into a lot of music because he would give me all the cassettes he didn't want anymore so he gave me ran the gamut the 90s it was um nine inch nails free hate machine which my mother hated and he gave me jim blossom soul asylum nirvana but then because i'm one of five kids my my older sister who's only two years older than me she gave me like she had cds that i would steal like i feel like i got every format because my dad had records my brother had cassettes my sister had cds and i listened to the radio because i just stole their stuff for a while um but what was the first artist or album or thing that you cared enough about to go spend your own dollars on to acquire elastica was my first cassette that i bought when i was in junior high i love that record so much so you heard connection on the radio like must oh man oh man back when the record stores had like the headphones and you go in there and you can listen to all the records that are out in that moment and that the woman that had the hair at the the long angle towards the front i wanted that so bad and where did you go to buy it there's a Sam Goody at... Um... Goody. Goody got it. <laughs> Sam Goody. Sorry. Good jingles are hard Where to was that mall? It was the... Not the, not the Willowbrook Mall. It doesn't matter. Some it was New a Jersey, mall. Some New you know, mall, where parents right. let their kids loose. Yeah. For some reason, like, that's safe or something. I don't know. So I'm guessing that when you moved away from home to go to school that was probably the first time that you were in a place where there was like a music scene not to make broad assumptions about your section of new jersey but absolutely because <laughs> not to say there was nothing i will say it may have been not my cup of tea i did go to some firehouse shows that were pretty fun and uh, i had a crush on a guy that had purple hair right like the all ages punk rock bombs. and i dated a guy very briefly in high school who was in a band called Scatalica. And he used to dedicate Brown Eyed Girl to me, not to brag or anything. <laughs> Scatalica, so Ska Metallica covers. God yeah. bless. Oh, yeah. Those were the days. Scatalica. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it was Ska, Jam, Punk. And right. that was about it um, for the live world. But in 1999, I graduated high school. And in high school, I was in like musicals and choir. And the head of my choir recommended me to school in Middle Tennessee State where um, someone a year ahead of me had gone for music because he was friends with my mom. My mom taught at my high school, and they all talked behind closed doors about how to go to a school that has music with a backup plan and mm-hmm. thinking of things that are musically related but still have a job right. in the distance. So Middle Tennessee State, which is in Murfreesboro, Murfreesboro, 
Tennessee. Yeah. Um, it's 30 miles south of Nashville, geographic center. Um, I lived there when there was actually something going on. There were sponge bath records. There was a venue called Sebastian's on the Square. Um, there was Americana. There's a lot of Americana going on, and which I didn't know about. And there was emo, which yeah. was a big thing. And I've stayed in Murfreesboro when we when I, we're broadcasting at Bonnaroo, and that's where we get our hotels. Well, a, a group of hotels in Murfreesboro. That was a big deal when Bonnaroo started because everyone was like, "Where's all the weed?" And it all went to the festival. And everyone went in the parking lot <laughs> that couldn't afford a ticket, and like that's where they get their weed. Because um, all of a sudden, because all, all of a sudden it was like where it was so easy to get before, and it'd be like this week where you just can't find anything. Um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> this may have t- no. Listen, I love that story, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a big deal when that went on. Um, so I worked at a venue that was a coffee shop and record store and screen printing studio and. One of the only places I had vegetarian options. Oh, wow, Vibe. What, what was yeah. it called? Or is it still, still there? It's actually a parking lot now. <laughs> and that's kind of what that town does to art. Yeah. Um, but what was it called when it was glorious? The all? Red Rose. Okay. And my friend Bingham Barnes ran it with my friend Mike Mullins. And Bingham now lives in Nashville and runs a great screen printing studio called Grand Palace that does really, really beautiful posters. You probably don't realize it, but you've seen a lot of posters um in nashville around there and he does they do beautiful work nice yeah so you so you applied to and got into this program at uh middle tennessee a music program but at that point did you did you even have a inkling of what that might how that might where that might go or what you might do with it or it's just like okay gotta do something also how urgently did you feel the need to get away from where you were and go somewhere else that was a realization i came to later but I knew that I wanted to get out of New Jersey, and the way I was brought up was that you have to go to college. Like, you don't get a minute. And so this was the one way out, I felt like. And I also wasn't very good at talking about things. I just said, this is the way it is. It's kind of how I was raised, so I just did it. And I didn't tell them that was the only school I applied to. But once I got in, I, I had this idealistic view of what college was. I thought you'd get to start taking music classes. <laughs> I thought... You get to take all the classes towards what you actually wanted to do. And after I did, like, pretty well in high school, I think I had 3.8 or something, to go back to that again, I thought I had gotten conned. Right, all to the take entry English level. again yeah. and biology. I was just like, this isn't fair. <laughs> so I also fell for a guy during that time um, who was – an anarchist basically um but also pretty controlling and i fell for him and i believed everything he said and hung on his every word and he convinced me to stop going and i also admitted to myself internally that it i wasn't it was i didn't really know what i wanted to do and i really only wanted to go to get out of the house and now that i was away i could think independently and just figure out how to be on my own for a while my parents didn't like that um so like we had a riff for a while and we didn't really speak for a few years and after like a hard year of figuring it out I found the Red Rose and and they took me under their wing so and and so was that did that become kind of a foundation of finding finding the kind of counterculture world that you still occupy or was that sort of the door 
what was that place? It sounds like, you know, kind of the first place where you were like, this is what the idealistic version of what sort of the world, this world, the indie world or whatever yeah. is, you know, that that was a place that combined all of the cool kooky things that it can be maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know, I didn't know about the touring world. You know, I knew about radio. I knew about these pieces of like these albums that my family are giving me and friends are giving me and these mixtapes we're making. But, you know, I lived in a pretty isolated area where I didn't know that people really did that other than arenas. And I got to see Azure Ray. I got to see um, The Faint. I got to see At the Drive-In and Cursive and, and Richard Buckner. So it was it was pretty cool. And it was at a time, too, where when people couldn't get a show in Nashville, they would stay in Murfreesboro and bands would crash in my apartment all the time. And so to, to meet people on that level and realize that it's something that it wasn't about money, they just wanted to make music. I mean, that was pretty life changing for teenager. Yeah. So it did. I mean, how kind of directly did that awareness spark you to start trying to write some, you know, more in a more focused way to write your own songs or to start to see yourself as someone who could do what these people were doing? Well, at the time, I didn't think of it as something I I could do, but it made me want to write more. And I, I wrote a lot at home, but I was with someone that, that thought that my writing was too personal to share with other people, which it was, and it probably still is a little bit. Now, I, I know that you have described in the past that your songwriting process is, you know, as has always been initially comes from kind of a, a surge of feeling about something that you are getting out that then you kind of return to and impart more shape to later. And so it was it during this period when these earliest songs you were writing, is that when that, is that when you discovered that that was the process, that that was what the pattern tended to be when a song came to you, it was when you were feeling some powerful, intense thing and had to just go and blah. <laughs> I actually, I didn't know probably until my New York days when people asked me more questions about what it was I was doing. I mean, just friends that would respond emotionally to some of my songs. And before I realized that it touched other people, you know, people can hear melody, people hear, hear guitar, but half the time I'm assuming that people don't understand what I'm saying or something. Mm. So the first few times that people said things to me, I actually, you know, I was taken aback by them saying, like, I'm sorry that happened to you. <laughs> and that happened to me, too. And, and I was like, I didn't know. How did you know that? Right. And then you thought it was more shrouded in mystery. But like you can put it in a distance, you know, and think that people don't, don't think that necessarily happened to you just because you wrote about it. But whatever I was exuding and however I performed and people do assume that it happens to you and and especially early on like I was very little I was fairly literal and um I paid attention to that and I realized that that's a really powerful thing you know more so than I had realized before uh, because I don't think sometimes you like it's something that I'm still honing in on because I, I do get I do talk about personal things and and really emotional things and I want to make sure that the listener is not feeling sorry for me and can connect to it in their own way so that they're just they can they can connect to it 
Yeah, I mean, although your music is seen as uh, as being sad or communicating, being good at communicating things that are sad in a way that's new and smart or something, but you're you you seem to be a fairly upbeat individual, <laughs> at least based on you know what what I've observed. So it's it's funny because people think people will uh, kind of reduce an artist to a signature quality that their songs have. And then forget that just like them, that artist is a person who only feels that way a fraction of the time. It's just that during that fraction of the time, you channeled it into this thing mm-hmm. that they can relate to or whatever. You know, tell me a little bit sort of how that how that is for you. Or have you found that sometimes people are, you have to be like, I'm, ha- I'm okay. Like, yeah. don't worry. Sharon's good. <laughs> well... It's just a song, buddy. <laughs> well, especially my mother, you know, she's just, I just, I just, I want you to write happy songs, you know. <laughs> Where my friends are all a little worried about you. <laughs> of course, she's gonna say that, you know. Right. And I do try to explain to her and and fans and friends, whoever might have concerns um, over things they've heard in the past. That I mean, this is, I do that so I feel better. I work out my emotions in the moment and I work past it and I'm able to process things better because I'm not good in the moment. And I'm I'm, a, I'm not a closed off person. I'm an introvert and it takes me a minute. I don't like reacting right away because I don't think I'm level-headed when I first get emotional. And I get so emotional I feel like I can't speak. And I just, by the time I get that worked up. But I'm usually just thinking because I just am not smart when I first react. And... But if, but if the song if the song writing process comes from the extreme overreaction, what you're saying you think is the, I mean that's probably why it's so it's so, you know why it works and communicates. So where but where do you go? What where what what is the room that you go to when you are are gonna start a song idea? Well, what's, it's changed. What's, what's your space like currently? I mean. Currently, um, I, so depending, so in my apartment, I have a piano and acoustic guitar and I try to keep all my gear in a studio and I just moved out of the studio. I was in salt mines for a while, which was in the, this building on J street in Dumbo, but, um, I was sharing it with somebody else and I just wasn't there a lot. And so now I have a smaller space that is a little cheaper, that now has everything that I have. And I haven't been able to go there this semester. Right. But I'm hoping to spend more time there in January. Right. But it cha- it's that, that's recent. I just moved I moved into that space at the top of the fall. And so it is, the, is your process sort of like uh, jotting down ideas and then waiting a while and coming back to listen and, and revise? I usually start with a melody, like a chord progression that's pretty simple so that it gives me more space to explore melodically. And then when I'm exploring melodically, I'll usually sing stream of conscious things and for words come out, phrases come out, but I don't think about it. I probably record for about 10 minutes and I just let my voice wander and then I'll put it aside without thinking about it and not try to force it. And it's just to get it out, just to get this thing out. And then I'll I'll re- return to it maybe months later, 
to have clarity and not, you know, I don't won't even remember that I wrote it. You right. Know? Or I'll remember like, oh, that was a weird thing I did on the piano. And, oh, I like that one chorus, but there's no verses. And, yeah. And I'll try to listen back to what it was I was saying. And then I'll form it. If it doesn't make sense in my life, I'll, I'll just listen to it as a story and see how it unfolds and where I connect to it now. And it's like a yeah. project. And does it, do you, if you, if it's that much longer or, you know, that much later that you listen back, I mean, can you remember what you were on about? Can you always remember what you were on about that day or what it was that it provoked this idea? Or, Not always, no? but sometimes that's helpful, <laughs> yeah. you know, it gives you some perspective and, you know, some of the songs like on this record that I definitely started before I was pregnant while, and then I got back, like I continued while I was pregnant and then after and so there's for the first time I felt like oh wow these are actually different perspectives about the same thing is it the melody you know is it the melody that that just the melody that ends up being the thing that you retain um as as what you feel like oh yeah that's what that's a keeper or is it or is it usually a lyrical idea that you're like gotta keep that yeah that was got something good there I mean, usually for me, it has to start with the melody for me to to just warm up and to feel like I have a slate to draw on. Yeah. I have lines and notebooks somewhere, like somewhere, and sometimes they come up in my subconscious while I'm working on a melody and it just comes out or or two pieces to two different unfinished songs and, and they'll find each other somehow in my memory, but... Yeah, for the most part, it's a chord progression and a melody, and then words happen. Yeah. <laughs> words happen. Yeah, so eloquent. Do you do a lot of Do you do a lot of uh, editing or refining or you know tweaking of in individual words or of the because it, it you know the focused language you know it's just very evocative and and like literate and it. To me, I always wonder how much uh, how much editing or revising when you're trying to convey a pure emotion, like an artist such as yourself, how much editing and revising you feel comfortable doing, or mm -hmm. if you worry about like, oh, I don't want to over trim that hedge. Yeah, there's some that I'll say that like no one's used it to love. I wrote in one sitting, and that was a fluke, and I didn't edit anything. And John Congleton, who I worked with, you know, he had said, oh, this song could be shorter, and I I just said. I don't see where I would cut anything and it wasn't a thing. He's like, oh, okay, that's all right. You know? Um, that's awesome. So like he's, yeah, it was like, I'm, I'm again, I'm not even used to working with a producer that would even suggest that I cut my art in pieces. <laughs> but that, that to me, that signals like a, a, like a confidence. I mean, do you feel like now at this point, several albums in that a thing that you were doing where you're like, some people like it, I don't know. Cool. Versus you have, do you feel greater confidence in your vision when you're, you know, at the point of pulling songs together for an album? You know, I was, I was so surprised that by the time I went to see that I had a folder full of songs that I was ready to make a record because it wasn't something I was planning on doing. And in that folder is a country record that I don't think the world needs right now and, and a piano ballad record, which I don't think the world needs right now. And then all these other songs that I couldn't classify that I was excited about. And when I played them for my partner, who's also a musician, he got really excited and, and he kind of laughed because he was like, how the hell did you make a record 
um, you have well, you have enough songs to make a record, and I think you should make this record. And he encouraged me to do that last fall. So um, I, I wasn't planning on it. And because you were just <laughs> planning to keep doing school, the kid, the missile, yeah. you know, side projecty things. Yeah, and- I just didn't know. I mean, because. You know, I've had friends ask me if I was just giving up music, and I'm like, well, I'm not giving up on it. I'm just taking a breather, you know? I mean, you can't just do it all the time. And right now, all I have to write about is being on the road, and that's super boring. Like, I just want to live for a minute, and then hopefully I'll write something else. Yeah. Um, but I was excited about these songs because they they felt different, and I didn't know what they were yet, and... It was the first time that I was ready to explore making it with somebody else and fully let go of the demos and giving someone skeletons and letting them build them instead of being hands-on like I'm, I always am. Right. Right. And also now you're at a point where there's, I'm guessing, less of the concern that someone might try and grab, you know, take credit for your ideas or something. Right. Or you, you don't have to be insist on doing everything yourself or whatever being as it's just like no there's someone else who can bring out something you wouldn't have thought of and it's it's not that's a good thing and I had the confidence to also know in myself that the last record I got to produce that was my knowledge and if I were to do the same thing it would sound the same right and which I'm proud of that record too but I I didn't want to make the same record and it also took me seeking a little bit. I, I you know, I, I tried a few things with different people and it wasn't the thing. They were amazing, talented people, but when I when I were, when I did one day with John, we did Jupiter for Memorial Day in one day. I knew he understood my freak side, you know. Like wow, he yeah. totally got it. Because yeah. I think people try to protect that songwriter in me, you know? And like, I, I kind of have, like, a lot of people think of me as kind of like a little sister. They want to protect me. But, like, he just kind of, he kind of pushed me, you know? And that's exactly what I needed in that moment. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Who are who are some of the artists who, for you, who, as a fan, you feel like, you know, you have their, the relationship with their songs that maybe is, is the relationship fans describe as, as having with yours? This, this sort of feeling that they really put into words in a way you, it's unbelievably uncanny what they put into words that you feel. Who are some of the artists that you've always loved or even more recently who you think are just gifted at that? I mean, it kind of runs the gamut from there's the piano player that I always go to. This His name is William Baines, and he there's such sadness in the way that he plays that I like going there sometimes. Um, but I love Big Thief. I think it's like listening to her music is like reading a beautiful novel. Like she really takes me on like a dream journey when I hear her music. And then, I mean, every time I listen to The Bad Seeds, it makes me feel like tough girl, like the girl that I I wish I could be, you know, like the badass, but that I totally am not. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting though, because yeah, definitely, um, you know, songs on this new album have like a goth kind of intense goth vibe uh, that I guess, you know, you can, you can be, you can be anything, you know, whatever you can be anything in your songs, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea behind 
taking like the the three influences on the record were specifically the Nick Cave album Skeleton Tree and Portishead and Suicide. But the message I wanted to get across was like, you don't know this part of my record collection. You know, if I were to invite a fan in to like see all the records, they would not get, you know, they'd be like, oh, really? That's interesting. Grow zone. Okay. You know, like (laughs) I, like, I don't, I think I, this, but I think it's informative for people, you know, it's like, yes, I also like this. It must feel kind of exciting to, finally have an album coming out where you didn't even mean to necessarily make one and and so even though you're going to do all the stuff and go Mm -hmm. play all the shows and you care about it like you're doing other things and it's not your it's not the be all end all anymore and it's not like and no one's been holding a gun to my head to make a record to go on tour i mean i work with the most amazing people i mean jag as a label has been so supportive for every random endeavor that i've had over the years just do your thing be an artist make the records you want to make and i don't think a lot of artists have that and and i think depending on where you're at in your career or what you want out of pursuing a music career like people have different goals but mine's to make music and have people hear it but i'm not gonna push too hard to be anything that i'm not yeah yeah, and I think people get there as well. It's if it's your only thing that you do, and if your entire identity is in the is in the this is what I do. I make records, and then I play shows. Um, it's hard to see the forest for the trees and know that you can pause and you do you're doing it because it's inspired by genuine feeling and mm-hmm. and creativity, and you don't have to be on a hamster wheel with it, yeah. you know? And I've just seen so many friends spiral because it just can be such an unhealthy lifestyle. And But sometimes it's like all you have, but then you're, you know, it's like the only way to make ends meet. And then you go on the road and it's easy to drink and not exercise and like only be out at night and be stuck in the car all day. And that's not healthy for anybody, but especially I feel like most creative people are prone to, I won't say depression, but like darkness, you know, and that can play on you. And I, I think some musicians feel trapped because that's all they know. And I, it made me want to learn how to diversify my creativity and learn how to be home and, and do this. So I tried to learn how to do other things, but... Yeah, the road scared me for a minute because I I like a drink and I like a smoke. And I also know that I, you know, I want to be in a healthy relationship and I want to try to live for a while. (laughs) I want to try to live for a while. I hope my son doesn't listen to this. Uh, I hope I live for a while. Um, (laughs) By the time he's old enough to listen to podcasts, they won't, we'll all be in outer space. Don't even worry. be like what was a podcast <laughs> you wouldn't understand <laughs> P- put your brain chip on on <laughs> white noise i'm talking <laughs> well i think that's probably a good place to wrap up okay thank you so much for bringing me donuts thanks for talking Sharon kicks off a North American tour on february 6th in washington dc bookmark sharonvanetten.com 
Up next on episode 21 of LSQ, an excerpt from a 2004 interview with Gwen Stefani. I met up with her in Vegas when she was there performing on the Billboard Music Awards around the same time as she released her awesome debut solo album, Love Angel Music Baby. And where this excerpt begins is with Gwen talking about the song Rich Girl featuring Eve and how the song samples a bit of music from Fiddler on the Roof. figured it out I was like okay just say everything that's true <laughs> you know all the things that cause, because it is crazy like my life how I did get like to be um have money like I never have money right you know what I mean like yeah. I, I went on the Tragic Kingdom tour two years later I was like okay no you know I didn't have anything except for my makeup box and my like right. old raggedy tour clothes and um I lived at my parents still you know what I mean so okay I, I, I just started thinking of things that are true in my life and then um Clearly, the whole message of Fiddle on the Roof is that if you don't have love, you don't have anything, you know. Right. So that was what I was trying to put in there as a kind of to balance it out. And still, it's so funny because I read around, read around kids like on the, the website or whatever. They'd be like, "How come Gwen just talks about how rich she is?" And it's like I don't get it. Like I don't know. Yeah. Or like they think the song "Luxurious" is about um, literal, but it's about being rich in love. So it's like. Um, you know, it's funny, but but I mean, it, that was the last point. I mean, isn't mo- aren't you playing a character on most of the record anyway? I think the whole the whole record was in the, if there's any moments on the record that are um, serious, that was not intended. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was supposed to be. I'm not. This record is inspired by songs like you know, <laughs> rumors by you know. You know, Club Nouveau and Lisa Lisa the Cult Jam and, like, you know, Prince and the Time. and the, You know, these are the kind of, this is where I'm getting Madonna, like, you know, right. the groove. This right. is my inspiration, okay? Right. So, for me, it was like, the, the challenge was to try to write a song um, about getting up and dancing on the dance floor. And that was really hard. That ended up being, for me to go and, like, be in a bad fucking PMS mood and write a song is... That's not like that's not a challenge. Right. I mean, that's that's like a release. Yeah. You know what I mean, for me to go and try to figure out the millionth way to say let's party tonight and have a good time and put that smile on, on yeah. everyone's face when they want to get out there and party, that's a hard thing to do. It really is. And I I feel in some way that I kind of failed because um, if you look at some of the songs, there's <laughs> like there's some real songs on the record, you know, that actually have meaning to them. And then, like every time I would try to write those other ones, um, they were just. I guess I'm so used to hearing myself say something um, that it just. I don't know. And even maybe the people I would play them for, they they wouldn't be affected by the ones that were just like, you know, I had this one song called. I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> See, it's just about dancing. I don't even remember the name of it. <laughs> writing lyrics on this whole session. Right. And it was fun. I was like, finally I let, like, finally I let someone into my world, you know, because it was very threatening, you know, because that's what I fucking define myself as is like, the one thing that I found in my life that makes me be right worthy or like be someone, that, that you know? no one can come in and like be like criticize it yeah you know if you let someone collaborate with you then they would be like well that doesn't really work and you're like fuck you i, I couldn't imagine if they said that i would be like <laughs> i would be like 
I didn't have, it was more about just like, just letting someone to even collaborate or um, suggest something and then my ego being able to take it if it was good. Do you know what I mean? That right. was what the hard part right. was. Right. I mean, that was like, it was so hard and like, even to, to today, like right now, like that's why the piano's in the room. Like, I'm, you know, like it's, I'm still totally, um, not good with it. Like, I'm still like, oh my God, you made it that far and I didn't. <laughs> it's really good. And like, that's why I can't call the record a solo record because when I sit down and I write the songs all by myself and I write the record that's me solo, then I'll tell you. But this is really clearly a collaboration album of, you know, working with a bunch of really talented people that I basically had to really fucking keep up with. Right. You know? And I mean, they tested me like, they intimidated me, but I'm we're talking about the nicest, most like welcoming, arms open, like you know, bowing down, nice, you know, to me. But right. for me in my own life world, coming into them, it was like fuck, you know, sitting next to Andre, going, okay, fucking, oh, I'm gonna make up something right now. You know, like really, you must have that feeling when you just listen to other people's records too, where like that feeling where you're like, I wish I wrote that every day. I was listening to, um, I think I listened, I was listening to a bunch of shit on the iPod on the way over here, like. Um, the sweetest thing by um, U2 and God, U2 alone like the amount of beautiful amazing songs yeah. that they've written you know and then, you know sometimes I'll write a song that I can't believe I wrote and the reason why is because I don't remember even doing it like certain songs that really may, really have like I'll be really proud of a song like Simple Kind of Life or like right. um, Don't Speak or you, you know Don't Speak is a song that was so just it came out of my heart like that record was so innocent because it was nobody was ever going to hear it right know? we were not the pressure of there was just like we were never going to get our record was three years you know what I mean yeah. we were like a throwaway band so um it's just weird it's just weird the whole process and then working with all these new people was like it was so hard it's still hard like it's still hard for me to accept that do you feel like it's do you the way you talk about it sounds like you don't you don't feel like it's actually done it's like it's still going. Well, because what what it is, it's so different from working with your best friends that you've known your entire like half of my life. You know, since I was seventeen, I'm thirty five. Um, I sat with those guys, and I I like, you know, I wrote songs with them, which is even in front of them. Like I can remember the rock city going, "Okay, you guys go out while I think of something." You know, let me like because you have to like. For me, when I write, I have a track or I have a guitar, whatever it is, and I just you just riff, you know what I mean? You just let loose, and it's so embarrassing. I mean, it's so funny to go in with people that you don't know and see them do it in front of you, too. Like, you know, like certain writers that I worked with, and like, oh, yeah. that's how they do it. Like, it's really embarrassing. You know? <laughs> or other people that are just fucking so talented, like Pharrell, that just, like, songs just pour, like, come out of their mouth, like, just done. It's just amazing, like, amazing, oh. amazing, amazing. But, um... Yeah, it was just so different to go in with all these other people and then complete it and then to go off and talk about it. And, like, usually I'm sitting next to the people that were there doing it with me, but right. this time it's like I have all these different people to talk about and remember the stories, and there was ton there was tons of really magical moments, and, like, it was almost like just like in the What You Waiting For video where the song writes itself, like, the whole record, every song has an incredible story to go along with how it was written, and, like, you know, because when songs are born, it's, like, it's pretty magical. Whether you're writing them on your own or you're writing with somebody else, it's like, God, that happened, you know? If it's been a while, as the Stain song goes, since you've listened to Gwen Stefani's Love Angel Music Baby, that album still slaps. Get back into it. 
And that was for a cover story for Rolling Stone that ran in early 2005. Thanks again to Gwen for her time back in the day. And thanks to Sharon Van Etten for that new interview earlier in episode 21, which is now about at its conclusion, the first new episode of 2019. And I'm so excited to be back with you and to already have interviews in the can with Perfume Genius's Mike Hadrius, Hamilton Lighthouser, Kurt File, And last week, I drove down to Costa Mesa to meet up with the fascinating Jennifer Harima of Royal Trucks. They're putting out their first new music in like 18 years coming up this spring. So all of that and more in 2019 on LSQ. Subscribe now if you hadn't done so already. And feel free to hit me up with feedback any old time on Twitter, at Jenny LSQ. Thanks again to Sharon and Gwen, and thanks to you as well. 